0: Something, Or uh, maybe the first time you kissed your spouse. That's a great event. Or maybe the birth of your first child. Or maybe your, your favorite sports team finally uh, won the championship. Or hopefully it's the day of your conversion. I hope you can remember that day. Well, for many of us, the awakening of our minds to the sovereignty of God uh, must be one of those unforgettable moments. It certainly, it is for me. My life has never been the same since that time when the Holy Spirit granted me illumination on that particular doctrine on the sovereignty of God. And by sovereignty, I mean that God actively governs everything. Okay, uh, so don't get scared off by that big word. And by everything, I mean that all all things that happen, whether it's the small things, you know, whether You know, we're talking about a little atom, or we're talking about big things like, uh, you know, whatever. You think of something big. In other words, what I'm saying is that God reigns supreme over all of his creation. I like the way Dr. Wayne Grudem said it. He put it this way, quote, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. In other words, rocks are rocks because God made them rocks. Water maintains H2O because that's the way God made it. And you will be a human because that's the way God made you. Number two, uh, that, um, that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. Now that last one will be important as we talk about the gospel. God directs all things to fulfill his purposes. Well, many Christians can bear testimony to the earth-shaking effects of realizing the sovereignty of God. These kind of testimonies are found in the Bible, and today we're going to look at one of those. probably perhaps one of my favorite examples of somebody who, who recognized the sovereignty of God and it was literally earth-shaking for him was the prophet Isaiah. We see the account of his life-changing encounter with the sovereign Lord here in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, how did Isaiah gain his understanding of God's sovereignty? And what influence did this have on his life? We're going to look at the answers to those questions. The answer is that Isaiah learned of God's sovereignty through his personal experience of seeing God the Lord. And it changed his life forever. It literally changed his life forever. Isaiah was never the same after this event right here we're going to look at. Well, if we can pinpoint the turning point of someone's life, we really gain a portal, if you will, into the very vitals of his or her heart. If I can learn something about a life-changing event in your life, a turning point... I will learn a key event in your life. Isaiah 6 records a pivotal moment in Isaiah's life when he gained the insights that governed all of those years of his ministry that were yet to come. Isaiah's turning point was also, by the way, his call to ministry as a prophet of God. And the Bible says in Isaiah 6-1 that it came in the year that Uzziah died. Look at Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's when this event took place. By the way, God often works this way. He'll often give us huge events, earthly events, that, that help contribute to us seeing the sovereignty of God. Now, we need to talk about King Uzziah for a moment, because the Bible mentions him here. King Uzziah's reign was... Very important in Jewish history. He was one of the better kings who ruled over Judah for 52 years. Imagine having a prime minister ruling over New Zealand for 52 years. That's essentially what's going on here. Now, what did Isaiah do? Well, the Bible says that he went to the temple. Now, why did he go to the temple? Well, uh, well, we're not exactly for sure why he went to the temple. Uh, Some presume that... He was looking for comfort in time of national and as well as personal grief. Some say that uh, King Uzziah was actually a cousin to Isaiah. So not only did he lose a a good king, but he also lost a, a family member. So the nation was mourning. But he went to the temple, and the Bible says he got more than he bargained for. If you look at Isaiah, again, look at Isaiah 6 1. Uh, we see that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. What did he see when he went to the temple? This is, this is more than he bargained for. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, notice the first thing he says there. The Bible says, he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. and that word, uh, Notice how the word Lord is printed in our English Bibles. Uh, it begins with a capital letter, but then it finishes with lowercase letters, right? You see that? Notice those things, by the way, when you're reading your Bible. Uh, and I'm pointing this out to you because sometimes the word Lord appears in all capital letters in the Old Testament. Now, this is not an error in printing. This is done on purpose, okay? Uh, they're doing, the, the translators are doing this for you to distinguish between two Hebrew words for God, okay? Now, let me just point that out to you. That when the word Lord here occurs in lowercase letters, the translator is indi- indicating to us that the, word, the Hebrew word is Adonai, or Adonai, however you want to say it. Okay, it, that's, that's the word in the Hebrew Bible. Adonai means sovereign one. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah is saying, I saw the sovereign one, Adonai. And that is not the name of God, by the way. Instead, is a title for God. Now, if you see the word or the word uh, Lord in all capital letters, that is a name of God. Now, that is the name of God, uh, uh, Yahweh. That's Yahweh. Okay. So that you need to distinguish between those. So all capital letters is Yahweh. Lowercase letters is Adonai, the Sovereign One. And by the way. Let me just mention this here, because he said, the Bible says, uh, Isaiah saw the Lord. Humans are not allowed to see the face of God. Humans are not allowed to see the face of God. In fact, the scriptures warn that no person can see God and live, because God is holy. R.C. Sproul said this, I love what he said, quote, We want to see God face to face. We want to bask in the radiant glory of his divine countenance. It was the hope of every Jew, a hope instilled in the famous and beloved benediction of Israel. Here's what it says, number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace, end quote. That was the hope of every Israelite. And sadly, we cannot see the face of God and live, at least not in our present sinful conditions that we are in at the moment but guess what this hope becomes more than a hope for the christian i don't want to end just on a sad note there because it actually becomes a promise in the new testament because in first john three verse two it says a wonderful truth look at this first john three verse two we are children of god and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we shall be like him For we shall see him as he is. There is a day though, my friends, when you and I will be able to gaze upon the face of God and we will see Jesus Christ, we will see the wounds in his wrists and in his side and his feet and we will not be consumed. Because we will be as he is. We will be perfect. (laughs) Praise God. I look forward to that day. That's a wonderful promise of God, is it not? That We shall see him as he is. My friends, do you understand the significance of that? This means that someday we will see God face to face. We will see His pure divine essence. We will see Him as He is. Not as we think He is, or as you know, books try to describe Him, or as this world tries to describe Him. We will see Him in His pure divine essence. And there will be no barriers between us and God. And I say, glory, hallelujah to that. I look forward to that day. Well, in verse 1, there are three important details that struck Isaiah about God. Take note of these, because Isaiah points them out for us here. You want to know who God is? This helps us to know who God is. Look what verse 1 says. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Here's number one. He is sitting on a throne. Number two. He is high and lifted up. And notice the third thing that Isaiah points out for us here. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I don't know about you, the first time I've, many times I've read that, actually, I've wondered, well, you know, what what exactly is Isaiah telling us here about God? I'd really like to understand that a bit more fully. Well, here's what one commentator said. This might be helpful. To Isaiah... The throne emphasized that the Lord is indeed the true king of Israel. Now remember, the earthly king of Israel has just died. He's walked into the temple. He's looking for comfort, presumably. And he sees the true king of Israel. He sees Adonai, the sovereign one. And then number two, it says that God's being high and exalted symbolized his position before the nation The Lord's long robe speaks of his royalty and majesty. Just as King Uzziah would have had a a kingly robe, well, guess what? It says here that Yahweh, or sorry, in this case, Adonai, has a kingly robe. Now look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now seraphim, by the way, are a a brand of angels, a kind of angel. There's many different uh, levels and kinds of angels, and this is one of them. The Bible says the seraphim are not sinful humans, but uh, they are different from us. They are not sinful Uh, The seraphim are not sinful humans uh, that are burdened with impure hearts like you and I have. They don't have sin natures. Yet, as angelic beings, they are still creatures. They are created beings. God created them. And it is necessary for them, as we see here, to shield their eyes from the direct gaze uh, of the face of God. Even they who are not sinful, who do not have sin natures, cannot gaze at the pure radiance of God's majesty and glory. They are equipped by their creator. These these special angels here, the seraphim, are created by their creator with a special pair of wings that that cover their faces in his majestic presence. Well, this act here, I think uh, many commentators would say, it indicates their humility before God. They can't even gaze into the, the holy face of God. They have to cover their face with those wings. Well, the seraphim, as it says here in verse 2, also have a second and a third pair of wings. The second pair is used to cover their feet. And I've been scratching my head over that one, trying to figure out, okay, uh, I mean, what's that all about? Is this, uh, is this some special form of angelic shoes? No, I don't think so. One commentator said this, quote, Covering their feet with two wings, two other wings, may denote service to God, and their flying with that third pair of wings may speak of their ongoing activity in proclaiming God's holiness and glory, end quote. Well, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I I don't know. Anybody who claims to know for sure what what these wings are all about, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. I don't know. That might be helpful. It may be true. Well, let's look at uh, verse 3, verse 3, which says, And one cried to another, that is the seraphim, cried to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now here we encounter the heart of Isaiah's vision. It is the song of angels singing, not just once, but thrice holy, God. He is a thrice holy God. Now the significance of that repetition of the word holy here can be easily missed upon us, I think. We don't often do this sort of thing in in the English language. We use other uh, things to emphasize something. But in in the Hebrew language, they would use repetition to emphasize something. And that's what's going on here. It represents a literary device that is found in Hebrew forms of literature, and and especially it's found in in Hebrew poetry. The repetition is a form of emphasis, kind of like us uh, in English language, you might underline something or put something in bold type, or uh, you might put quotation marks around it or something like that to emphasize something. That's the idea here. It's a form of emphasis. The ESV Study Bible says this, Quote, The threefold repetition intensifies the superlative. Holiness implies absolute moral purity and separateness above the creation. Now we only, at least when I was growing up, I used to only think of holiness in that first light there as moral purity. But holiness, God's holiness, is more than just moral purity. It is also the truth that God is separate from his creation. He's totally separate from his creation. The Bible never, by the way, never ever can you find anywhere in the Bible does it ever say that God is holy, or sorry, that that God is love, 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 or that God is mercy, 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 or that God is just, just, just. You won't find that. The only place you find that God is something thrice is that he is holy. And that's why holiness is his central attribute. The Bible says he is holy, holy, holy. Now look at verse 4. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now please note here that when God appeared in the temple, remember Isaiah's walked in the temple, God appears, he sees Adonai. The Bible says that the doors and the thresholds were moved. The lifeless matter of the doorpost and the non-living thresholds, the wood and the metal that, that were there in the temple, could neither hear, excuse me, could neither hear nor speak, of course, but they had the good sense to be moved by the presence of God. Think about that. Even the non-living things, even the lifeless matter that God has created has the sense to move in His presence. In other words, they began to quake where they stood. Do you ever quake in the presence of God? Do you? You should. You should. You should quake in the presence of God. Now look at Isaiah's response to this truth here. I mean, he sees the post of the door shaking and the threshold shaking. But look at Isaiah's response in verse 5. He says, So I said... Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, capital K, King, the Lord of hosts. Notice all capital letters, Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one. So the doors were, as you see here, were not the only things that were shaking, right? The thing that was probably quaking the most in the presence of God here was Isaiah's body. <laughs> he was quaking, he was shaking in the presence of God. And when he saw the reigning monarch of the universe, Isaiah cries out a very interesting cry here. He says, woe is me. Now think about that word woe for a moment. On the lips of a prophet of God, what did the word woe mean? Well, on the lips of a prophet of God, the the word woe is an announcement of doom. It is not a happy thing. It is the exact opposite of happy. It is the announcement of doom. So Isaiah's use of woe here was something extraordinary. Why would I say that? Because when he saw the Lord, he is pronouncing this judgment of God, but notice whom he's announcing this judgment of God upon. It's not upon the nation of Israel. It is not upon other nations. It's upon whom? He is announcing doom upon himself. This judgment is is announced upon himself. He says, woe is me. And then immediately following this curse of doom, Isaiah cried, I am undone. I am undone. Oh, that's, that's a great way to put it. What a great way to put it. Uh, think about this for a moment. What, what is Isaiah saying here when he says, I am undone? To be undone means to come apart at the seams. Okay? Any of you ever sewed up something? Okay, you sew something up, right? There are seams whenever you sew something, unless it's just one big piece of cloth or fabric. Uh, you know, somebody put, makes a tent, for example, there's going to be seams and they. And of course, hopefully, they, if they do a good job, they try to make those seams waterproof. Otherwise, you're sleeping in a tent, you'll get wet, water will come in through those seams. You have, all of you are wearing a piece of cloth on your body right now that have seams. You know, this shirt has seams right here. The sleeves joined, and that, that's a seam. And, yeah, and, and he is saying, I am undone. he's literally saying, I have come apart at those seams. I have been unraveled. Now, modern psychologists would probably describe this experience as personal disintegration. Here's what Dr. R.C. Sproul said, If ever there was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah, Ben Amoz. He was a whole man, a together type of a fellow. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. Then he caught one glimpse, one sudden glimpse of a holy God. In that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. The instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard... He was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. End quote. Now that's very bad news, isn't it? That's bad news. Isaiah came apart. He was unraveled. He was undone. He was absolutely shattered by seeing God and His holiness. That's bad news. And so we have to ask the question, well, is there hope for us? Is there hope for us? And yes, praise God, there is. The holy God is also a God of grace. He's not just holy, he is also a God of grace. Look at verse 6. We see this God of grace in verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips." Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. In other words, the idea there of purging, it was atoned for. He refused to, God refused to allow his servant to go without comfort. And we can thank God that God is not just a God of wrath and justice and holiness, but he is a God of comfort and grace. So God took immediate steps here to cleanse the man... And to restore his soul, and what what did God do? He commanded one of these angels, these seraphim, to fly and to immediately act upon Isaiah. What did the angel do? The Bible says that the angel uh, took this white hot coal and pressed it to the lips of Isaiah the prophet and seared his lips. Can you imagine that? That would be painful. I mean, lips, lips are tender, aren't they? We don't like it when we get cold sores or anything affecting our lips, right? We, we hate that because lips are very, very sensitive. And I, think one of the, I, and I like that truth. I think God, one of the reasons he made that, our lips that way is so we can enjoy kissing. I love kissing my wife. And I, I think uh, because the lips are so sensitive, kissing is something that we can enjoy. God has made it that way. But God takes this white-hot coal and presses it, or the angel presses it on his lips, and seared them. I'd say, ouch! That would hurt. And this was a severe mercy on God's part for Isaiah, and a painful act of cleansing. But in this divine act of cleansing here, Isaiah experienced forgiveness. He experienced cleansing deep within his soul, not just on his lips, but within his soul, within his heart. It went beyond the purification of his lips. He was forgiven deep into his core. But not without this painful act of repentance. That's what cleansing requires, my friends, repentance. Forsaking of sin. That's what Isaiah did. What a wonderful picture of grace this is for us. And in a moment, the, this disintegrated, unraveled, undone prophet was made whole again. That was an act of God's grace. Isaiah didn't deserve that, but that's what he received from this holy God who is also a God of grace. So, as we look at this, we can learn something of God's sovereignty. After all, what did Isaiah see? He saw Adonai, right? The sovereign one. So what is so great about the sovereignty of God? What difference does God's sovereignty make for you and me? Okay? You might be saying, well, that's great. You know, I, I've never walked into the temple, and this has never happened to me. So you know, what difference does this make to me? Well, for Isaiah, it meant everything. It meant everything. In his response to the vision of God's sovereign lordship, we can observe four marks. We're going to look at today. Four marks that will also play out in our experience when we are made aware by God's grace of his sovereignty. The first mark of an awareness of God's sovereignty is a readiness to serve. A readiness to serve. A readiness to serve. That's what we see in the life of Isaiah here, and I think you'll find that to be true in your own life as well. When you are made aware of God's sovereignty, when you see Him as He is, you will have a readiness to serve. Everything in the Christian's life changes when he or she grasps the truth of God's sovereignty. Isaiah's life changed. My life has changed. and Lord willing, it will continue to change. But the first change for Isaiah Isaiah came immediately upon his vision of the Lord enthroned. Look at verse 8. Look at this. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. Isaiah had a readiness to serve the Sovereign One. And since God is the true Sovereign Lord, there is no greater privilege than to serve Him, is there? Can you think of anybody greater to serve than the Sovereign One, the Lord, Yahweh? Serving God makes other pursuits diminish when you see who He really is. I mean, think about it. Whatever it is we do during the week... Those things pale in comparison to serving the sovereign one. At least they ought to. By the way, not everyone is called to the prophetic office. Okay, But if you have seen the sovereignty of God, you will see all of your labor as an opportunity to extend God's reign and to serve his kingdom. Well, it is when we realize how great God is, how total his sovereignty is, and how glorious his kingdom is, that we will want to serve him in all we do. Is that your attitude? Is that the attitude of your heart? That whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do you do it all to the glory of God? Do you? Do you think about that when you're doing the mundane things of life, like eating and drinking or whatever you do? Are you doing it all to the glory of God? You want to. That became the heart of Isaiah. So in serving God, well, let me just ask you, is serving God the glory of your life? Is serving God the passion of your life? Or do you have things that come above that? If you do, guess what? You've just made another God, and you're worshiping it. We're we're all tempted by by this, okay? So so can we just come to the point right now and just say, and stop pointing fingers at other people and, and thinking, that's not me, but you know that person over there has an issue with that. He really needs to repent of his sin of worshiping other gods. We shouldn't do that because we all have this tendency of making idols. Is serving God your passion? The first mark was a readiness to serve. The second mark of an awareness of God's sovereignty is a humble, trusting obedience to God's commands. Chapter 6 concludes with God's description of what God wanted Isaiah to do. Isaiah volunteers. He says, here am I. Send me. But what did God want Isaiah to do? Well, we can read a little bit about that. By the way, the shock caused Isaiah to flinch a little bit here. I think he flinches a little bit under what God says. Have you ever noticed what God says to him? Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. And he, that is God, said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said... You can see Isaiah flinching here just a little bit. Lord, how long? How long? I think I'd be saying the same thing. Uh, I might be able to, I I probably would have said some other things. I probably would have said, uh, uh, Lord, I think you have the wrong person. You know, that, that ministry sounds really hard and depressing. You know, I really don't want anything to do with that. Did Isaiah do that? No because he understood who the Sovereign One was. He had seen him. So he didn't do that like we might be tempted to do, but he does ask the question, how long? I mean, how long am I going to have to do this ministry, this very unpleasant ministry? Do you understand? Isaiah's calling was to bring about a hardening of the hearts in Judah, in, in Jerusalem. His ministry would cause calluses as a prelude to judgment. Isaiah understood, if you read the whole book of Isaiah, he understood that judgment, a very severe judgment, was to come upon the nation of Judah. Eventually they would be conquered by Babylon. His ministry would cause calluses. Why? Because God intended first to purify them, and then only then would he deliver them. Well, we can hear Isaiah suppress a cry at this particular instruction here. How long? Yet he does it without complaint. He's not murmuring. He's not arguing with God. He's just simply asking a very reasonable question. How long do you want me to do this for? And the answer probably shocked Isaiah. Look at verse 11. Because verse 11 says that he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, but yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming. As a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains what it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. How would you like that as an answer to your question of how long? think about this. Isaiah probably entered the temple because he was concerned for the well-being of Jerusalem. After all, King Uzziah has just gone. He's died. And having met the sovereign Lord, he learned of terrors far beyond his original fears. He saw the Lord. But how did he respond? Did he complain? Did Isaiah complain about this? No. We can praise God that he never did complain. Why? Because he had seen the Sovereign One, he had seen the Lord, he saw Adonai. And if he was called to a ministry of hardening, then Isaiah had the attitude of, then hardening it will be if that's what God wants me to do. It didn't occur to Isaiah that he knew better than the Lord. He figured God knew best. I'll just do what God wants me to do. A similar commitment to God's sovereignty would inspire us to a humble, trusting obedience to God, I think. If we had this kind of a commitment to God's sovereignty, we would never argue with God. We would never quarrel with God. we just simply obey when God commands us to do something, no matter how difficult or uncomfortable it might be. By relying on God's sovereign purpose, we can face difficult circumstances without wavering. We can face cancer without wavering. We can can experience the loss of loved ones without wavering. We can experience uh, who knows what. I don't know. You, You think of something unpleasant. We can experience all of those things without wavering when we understand God's sovereignty. We can trust the wisdom of God. We can obey the commands of a sovereign God who works all things out according to the purposes of his will. Number three. The third mark of an awareness of God's sovereignty is holy boldness. Holy boldness. Now, this mark surfaces in chapter 7. I'll remind you, chapter divisions are not inspired. They are helpful for us in finding things, but they are not inspired. If you look at chapter 7, we have a passage here that that, that surely is linking, uh, at least it's linked in theme, to chapter 6. Remember, Uzziah has died. Jotham is Uzziah's son and his successor, but his reign has finished. It was a short reign. It had been a time of decline and a beginning of decay in Judah. But with Jotham's, with Jotham, Jotham's successor, on the scene now comes Ahaz. We, uh, and with Ahaz, we have a period of flagrant disobedience to God that was about to begin. As if things could get worse, yes, they could. And they did. Now, the immediate cause of trouble was an invasion of Judah by the northern nation of Israel. Remember, the nation of Israel divided. Remember that? After Solomon, it divided. You had the northern and the southern kingdom. Well, the northern kingdom at times attacked the southern kingdom, and at times the southern kingdom would attack the northern kingdom. Well, in this case, we have the northern kingdom of Israel wanting to attack the southern kingdom of Judah and And they've called in help to do that. they've called in Aram, the country of Aram, to help them. unbelieving Ahaz began looking around for for a worldly ally to help him as these people were planning on to uh, attacking him. He wanted help, and he was willing to do whatever that 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 meant to find help, whether he didn't care if he compromised in the process. Hey, if I have to find. You know, people who are involved in idolatry to help me against them, I'll do so. That was his attitude. His choice, by the way, was Assyria. The ones who conquered the northern nation of Israel was Assyria. They were the growing power to the north of their enemies, so they called upon them to help out. But God sent Isaiah the prophet to confront and proclaim this message to the king. Look what he has to say in chapter 7, verse 4. And say to him, that's what God said. Here's what you're to say to the king. Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. For the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying... Let us go up against Judah and trouble, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Let's stop there. God's message to King Ahaz was that the mighty kings of Israel and Arab, excuse me, were not real sovereigns. You may think they're real sovereigns, but they're not. The true sovereign is the Lord who reigns supreme over his creation. That was the message to King Ahaz. Isaiah points this out to Ahaz with these words that are calling for faith in verse 9. Look at these words calling for faith in verse 9. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe... Believes another word for faith or trust. Surely you shall not be established. So Isaiah is telling the king, if you do not believe, if you do not have faith, if you do not trust in the Lord, surely you shall not be established. This was the message that God sent Isaiah to deliver to the king of Judah. Now let me remind you who, the king, who king Ahaz is. Okay? He is the reigning monarch who is equipped with all of the earthly powers to destroy anyone who gets in his way. That's who he is. And this encounter must have been frightening for Isaiah. Most of us, you think about this, this would have been frightening for me. I mean, most of us are we're terrified uh, you know, it, it, over the thought of mentioning God to friends at work. Or, our, or whatever our friends and family might be who are unsaved. We're terrified over that sometimes. The fear of man squelches us from evangelizing. When you think about that, is that easier or harder than doing the job that God gave to Isaiah here? Giving this ultimatum to the king. But that's the difference it makes, my friends, when we see the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God makes all the difference. If you understand the sovereignty of God, the fear of, the fear of man, well, that, that goes away. That'll, or at least it's going to be smaller than the fear of God. Whatever fear Isaiah felt for King Ahaz was, was brushed aside by this much greater fear of the sovereign Lord. A consciousness of God's sovereignty gives us a holy boldness. That is one of the marks of an awareness of God's sovereignty. We will have a holy boldness before the world, before all of its powers, if you see God's sovereignty. Now, this is what made Isaiah useful. Now, I realize that this kind of talk made, isn't going to fill a lot of stadiums today with, with people who just want to hear this wonderful message. And I realize that it's not a popular message. And it may not place a congregation on a list of the church growth success charts. However, the willingness to speak the truth of God is a sure sign that the speaker has experienced the sovereignty of God. If a speaker or a a preacher or a pastor or whatever shies away from this message, they don't understand the sovereignty of God. Let's look at the fourth mark of an awareness of God's sovereignty, and it is an utter reliance on sovereign, saving grace. It's an utter reliance on sovereign, saving grace. Now this mark is seen in the sign that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz. Isaiah urged the sign on Ahaz for the purpose of increasing his faith. He had weak faith. He didn't know God like he should. If you look at it in, in uh, And by the way, we're going to see this in verse 14, but it was a sign that was foolishness in the eyes of the world. It was was foolishness in the eyes of King Ahaz. He didn't believe it, but it was glorious in the eyes of God. Look at verse 14. Here's the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Imagine this. Imagine, put yourself in, in King Ahaz's sandals for a moment, okay? You have never heard of a virgin giving birth to anyone before. You've never heard of this. As far as you know, that's totally impossible, and it is. It was a miracle that that happened, and it did happen. So here's Isaiah. He's in the presence of of Ahaz, who is just living in unbelief. He's living as an apostate. And Isaiah gave the greatest sign of sovereign grace that he could think of. What is it? A pregnant virgin. (laughs) Amazing. And from that that, that particular womb would come who? A Savior, Jesus Christ. Imagine how little a man such as Ahaz probably esteemed this kind of a sign. Think, do you think he thought it was really important, the birth of a baby, as a reason to trust God with his problems? I don't think so. Ahaz probably laughed at Isaiah when he said that. I imagine he didn't think too highly of this sign, just as many today consider the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the virgin birth, to be foolishness. Now, this reminds us that a true gospel ministry can succeed only if a virgin girl gives birth to a son. My friends, that is part of the gospel. A virgin girl has to give birth to a son, and it can't be just any son. It must be the one who comes from the Holy Spirit. That message is foolishness to our world, isn't it? The world doesn't understand that. They laugh at that, they ridicule, and they say, Oh, that can't happen. But she has, she did. Her name was Mary. Her name was Mary, and her son's name was Jesus. It happened. It was a literal event. It was a miracle that the Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ. So praise God, the miracle of grace continues today, doesn't it? If if this doesn't encourage us to continue laboring in prayer, if this doesn't encourage us to continue to read and to study our Bibles, if this doesn't continue uh, to encourage us to to listen and to preach the word, if this doesn't encourage us in self-denial, if this doesn't encourage us in holy obedience to God, then nothing ever will, my friends. Isaiah's sign of the virgin birth tells us not to trust in human wisdom, because human wisdom would say, what? A virgin giving birth to a son? That's impossible. That can't happen. But it did. And it tells us not to despair in the face of human difficulty and personal failure. If God can overcome the impossible like that, he can overcome those so-called impossible things in your life too. And so if we, like Isaiah, gain a vision of God's sovereign glory, we will count it our privilege to serve this sovereign Lord. It will be a privilege. It will be our passion. It will be the love of your life to serve him with your all. He is the one who brought our Savior into the world through a virgin womb. And he is the one who will bring many to salvation as we rely on his sovereign, saving grace. May God help us to see ourselves as a holy God sees us. May God help us to see ourselves as Isaiah saw himself. And may God help us to see God as he really is. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Sovereign One, you are the self-existent One, you are the Holy One, you are the Sovereign One, you are holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of your glory. Father, may we see your glory that surrounds us in your creation May we see your glory in your word. May we see your glory in the living word, Jesus Christ. May we not lose sight of Christ. May we look to him and set our eyes on him as we run this race of life. Father, may we remember that this race that you've set before us is not all there is. It's temporary. It's not permanent. And it's very, very short. So may we not lose sight of Jesus Christ. May we not lose sight of the goal. May we not lose sight of your glory and your holiness and who you are. And May we set our affections on things above and not on the earth. May we be laying up treasure in heaven. May, we, may our whole heart love you. Father, forgive us for hearts that are divided. We know that we cannot serve two masters. Either will we hate the one and love the other, but we can't serve you in other things. So may your sovereignty be seen by us. Father, may you help my dear friends here in this room see your sovereignty. May it be real. May it be personal. May it affect them. May it be life-transforming as it was for Isaiah. And may they see their sin and their sin nature as you see it Father, help us to come apart at the seams. May we be unraveled. May we be undone by your sovereignty and your holiness. Forgive us for our self-righteousness. We do not often see ourselves, maybe never do we see ourselves as you see us. We have pharisaical hearts. Forgive us for those pharisaical hearts. May we not for one moment think that we can save ourselves or have any part in saving ourselves. May we not even think for one moment that we can see your sovereignty and your holiness in and of ourselves. We need your grace. Father, bestow your grace upon us. Please do not give us what we deserve. We beg and we plead for grace. So may this truth that we've seen here today sink deep within our hearts and transform us into the image of Christ, and we'd be more like him every day of our lives. Forgive us for being caught up in this world and the trivialities of our world and losing sight of you and your greater purposes. I pray that your sovereignty would be made aware in our lives and that that everyone in this room would be transformed. May we see your holiness. May we see our sin. And may we hope in You. May we look to Christ, the One who has made it possible for us to be holy. Because He is holy. Father, we thank You for the forgiveness of sins. We thank You for the cleansing of, of iniquity. And that we can stand before You, and a righteous and holy God, and we plead the blood of Christ. We claim the righteousness of Christ. We need his righteousness. We, may we understand imputed righteousness and justification. So may we go from here preaching the gospel to ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turning your hymn book to number 400.